Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Neil Dada with Economic Forecasts, out 100 years, joins us now, head of U.S. economic research at Renaissance Macro, and he has been a strident optimist through gloomy times. Neil, what does the gloom crew get wrong on this Monday morning? Well, first, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that the recession chatter is ubiquitous. I mean, it's everywhere. I think I was reading an article in The Economist talking about recession risk rising. Obviously, we're seeing a number of major sell side uh, research houses, um, you know, mark up their expectations or probabilities for recession. Um, But, you know, my view is that the risk of recession is really no higher uh, right now than it normally is. I mean, I still think we're more or less in this inflationary boom type of economy. And I think that's more or less going to persist, um, you know, for the next 12 months. Um, You know, when I look at you know, what's going to drive the recession right now? I mean, we're talking about how homes aren't being built and how cars are not being built. So, I mean, what's really stretched? I mean, potentially durable goods consumption, but it's hard to see how that in and of itself is going to drive a recession, um, particularly at a time when consumers are still sort of flush with cash and seeing a very strong labor market, um, you know, outlook. So, Neil, we see uh, a lot of calls for recession, but is that really what's being priced in? I mean, yes, we have seen some declines and we have seen some areas that have gotten really hit. But I also read just as many reports saying lean into cyclicals, go to, to retail, you know, buy the dip. How much have we actually priced in pessimism? I mean, if you look at most surveys of investor, uh, you know, sentiment, it's not exactly in a bullish zone. I mean, consumers, for example, the conference board does data on, you know, do you think stock prices are going to go up over the next 12 months or down? And, you know, more consumers are saying they're going to go down. So, you know, I wouldn't say that there's optimism in the markets. Um, I think that, you know, uh, I think uh, sentiment around around equities over the next year are, are, are pretty are pretty negative, frankly. So how would you say, how would you position this? I mean, the other way of looking at this is how aggressive should you get leaning into risk? And I know that we were, you know, frame this, Tom framed this, and rightly so, is that you've been a bull and frankly, you've been right. Uh, But then how much do you say, okay, well, then you need to buy everything that's beaten up. You need to go into the Russell 2000. You need to buy banks. I mean, where are you where are you taking uh, that optimism right now? Well, I I mean, it's a it's a difficult situation because right now, um, you know, I mean, interest rate, we're in a rising interest rate environment, and that's going to have a, uh, a, you know, a negative impact on, you know, certain industries that um, constitute a very large weighting in the equity markets, like tech, right? I mean, so we're seeing that. Uh, I guess the way, the way I'm thinking about it right now is really how much more room is there for the markets to price in a more aggressive Fed for this year? And I don't really think there's much more the markets can do. We're basically pricing in neutral by year end. It's hard to see the Fed getting more hawkish than that. They've signaled that they want to get up to neutral. Um, and I think they'll do that. But, you know, the markets are already there. So perhaps that brings some reprieve in terms of the interest rate backdrop for the back half of the year. And maybe that provides some catalyst for some of these cyclical areas of the market. But I think looking beyond that, you know, it's, I still think that would probably be a trade you'd want to rent as opposed to own, because I do think that the markets fundamentally are haven't gotten their heads around just how far the Fed is likely to go in this cycle. Um, I don't think the terminal rate is going to be 
um, you know, two and three quarters percent. I think it's going to be higher than that. How high, uh, Neil? Why? How, I mean, no, how high? How high do you think it's going to go? I mean, right now I'll say higher. <laughs> it's, you know, you're, you're, I mean, this is one of these classic questions where you're like, what do you think the tenure is going to do? I mean, I have no idea, but I think it's, it's, we haven't stopped. I mean, to the extent that markets are pricing in cuts in 23 and 24 because of some sort of recession risk, I think those cuts are going to get priced out. So I do think that there's probably some upside to the longer end of the yield curve here. Um, I don't see why the terminal rate can't be three and a half or four. Um, you know, nominal GDP, we're in a very strong nominal GDP environment. And consumers are flush with cash. They're sitting on a large pile of excess savings, and they have substantial room, substantial room to absorb more normal levels of credit appetite. At the Great. same time, we've seen basically China and potentially Europe slip <laughs> in to economic weakness th this year. Do we really think right. that's going to be with us in 23 and 24? The U.S. economy is unlikely to go into a recession with China and Europe right. probably reaccelerating in those years. Neil, I want to... Uh, Neil, I got to interrupt the show. I think this is so important. You've just framed out, as Lisa notes, a terminal rate of three and a half to four percent. Ninety-nine point nine two five percent of radio and TV listeners worldwide would suggest that throws America into some form of stagflation, growth recession, or outright NBER recession. Are you saying it won't? Well, I mean, I think what you're seeing. That may, but but I, I think the issue is where does the consensus think the terminal rate is? And you know, to me, the, the consensus thinks the terminal rate is basically what, like two and a half percent, right? I mean, that's why uh, you know some of these parts of the curves are, are, are already inverted. Um, I think that's frankly too low. So I think the markets underestimate the extent to which the Fed can go without breaking the economy. Uh, Productivity is slowly rising. The labor force participation rate is continuing to climb. That all means that the Fed can go longer without breaking the economy. Neil, speaking of why the Fed will go as far as it goes, CPI data tomorrow, does it have any real bearing on the decisions that policymakers will make at least come May? No, the die is cast. The die is cast. So then when does the data start to matter again? What would it take? Uh, well, I mean, I think that for me, I primarily view these questions around the labor market. And, you know, to me, it's about jobs, hours, and earnings. And when you look at the sum product of those three things, it's growing, you know, eight, 9% at an annual rate, um, you know, so far this year. And eventually, uh, that should slow. I mean, as, you know, participation rates climb, wages start to moderate, you won't see a strong uh, jobs growth at low rates of un uh, unemployment. Uh, so maybe that starts to cool off somewhat. Um, and that could take some pressure off of inflation because obviously whatever doesn't go into uh, into quantity, whatever is not real, will just the remaining will be inflation. Um, mm. So we have to see. But to me, it's really about the labor market. I don't think that's going to happen <laughs> anytime soon because I do think there's probably additional downside to the unemployment rate over the next several months. I mean, you're going to be in a situation where uh, you know the Fed is probably going to mark down their estimates for for unemployment. Um, but uh, I do think it's primarily about the labor markets. On the subject of unemployment, the Fed thinks three and a half percent is going to stay the case through 2023, even if it moves aggressively. Do you buy that argument? No, no, so I think they would have to go much more aggressively in order to keep the unemployment rate at that rate at, at three and a half percent. We'll probably be in the low threes by the end of the year. So, you know, either one of two things can happen. Right. I mean, the Fed can basically um, pencil in more rate hikes. Um, 
in future years to make sure that the unemployment rate um, stays at three and a half percent or um, they don't change their estimates for rates and the unemployment rate continues to plunge. Neil Dutta, a primer. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Really important comments there. Our interview of the day on yield, and it is yield up and it is decidedly priced down. Marilyn Watson is head of Global Fundamental Fixed Income Strategy at BlackRock and has a wonderful view of this strange idea of it's not just about yield, it's about price as well. Marilyn, I just took the H15 10-year series back to the time of Volcker, and we had lower yields and higher prices of five standard deviations in the pandemic scare to low, low yields. We've reversed and we are up, but up only one standard deviation off that long-term great moderation. Can you and BlackRock say that the great moderation is over? I don't think that yet we can say that the great moderation is necessarily over. I think what we're seeing now is we are in this uh, period of correction, having had incredibly suppressed uh, yields for going back several years now and then exacerbated during, obviously, the pandemic. So I think what we're really seeing now is an increase in volatility as the market really is positioning itself for the Fed to be more aggressive um, in, in terms of quantitative tightening, both in terms of raising interest rates and also uh, the runoff in the balance sheet that potentially will come maybe in May or in June. Um, and I think as we do start to see the Fed really start to shift away and try to move towards a neutral uh, point, then it's, you know, it's understandable that we're seeing a lot more volatility in the market. I think it's also incredibly important when we continue to look at inflation, just how high it is in the US and elsewhere around the world. Um, and as you mentioned before, there are a number of factors that are really exacerbating this, whether it be uh, the lockdown in China and Shanghai uh, due to COVID restrictions, whether it's energy and the massive impact that uh, that's having in Europe in particular, for example. So I think there are a whole confluence of factors that are really you know, exacerbating the volatility in yields uh, and the market's expectation of what we can see from interest rates from the Fed and also from the ECB as well as we go forward this year. Marilyn, Marilyn, earlier this morning, Tom Kennedy of J.P. Morgan, a private bank, asked a really good question. How high do yields have to go to restrain inflation? What's your view on that? Yeah, I mean, so, so at the moment, we do think that rates could go definitely a bit higher from here. It is our view that inflation will probably start to roll over pretty soon. It is obviously at very high levels, but given the base effect um, and other things that will sort of come into play, we do think that inflation will start to tick down, but obviously from very incredibly high levels. Uh, I think that's why you know, the Fed has indicated it, it will be more aggressive. I think that's also why the ECB has started to signal that you know, it's potentially ending its asset purchase program maybe you know in the July, the third quarter of this year. And it's teed itself up to potentially raise rates as well by the end of this year. So I do think that rates could go higher. Um, I think it definitely go higher from here. But we also do need to keep a firm eye on inflation. And, and I think there the risks are huge. As I mentioned, there are risks in terms of you know pushing inflation higher. If we start to see you know issues around, you know, the, as I said, the restrictions in China, energy, elsewhere, or we could start to see inflation actually roll over. Um, and, you know, the, and the other part of the equation, of course, is growth. You know, there's a large risk now around the growth in the eurozone. I think that's certainly a factor that will come into play as we look at what the ECB may do later in this year. But also when you look at the U.S. as well, 
think growth, you know, remains relatively strong. The labor market is incredibly tight, um, you know, and we're also, you know, continuing to see the consumer um, and the high level of household savings that they still have. They're starting to run those down as they still continue to purchase when see retail sales and other things. And it really depends whether we see a shift in sentiment, like how much further that has to go. But for the time being, I think growth remains relatively solid in the U.S., and really inflation and inflation data is absolutely critical now. So in the wall of worry, Marilyn, that you talked about of the potential potential increase in inflation, potential slowdown in growth, what do you do? How much do you lean into a risk at a time when people already are somewhat bearish? I would just say people. I'm not going to specify who. <laughs> so at the moment, so we have been short duration. Now we're relatively, I would say, neutral. We still have you know, relatively low duration. But I think now, given that the risks are two-sided, you know, we are being very flexible. We now are starting to get a little bit more carry um, in you know, front-end rates. Um, so we're starting to, you know, just invest a little bit more there. We do like some areas of securitized, investment grade. And we are looking to be very, very diversified. Uh, that being said, of course, we are still relatively conservative at the moment. I think the next two months when we see, uh, you, know, the, you know, further inflation data, further data around growth, we see developments ongoing around uh, you know, the situation in uh, Ukraine, the impact of sanctions. So I think there's a lot that still needs to be factored in and that we really need to see evidence either way of how things are starting to shape out. But I think there are areas now where we can see value, where we are starting to get some yield. Mm. Um, and I think diversification is really the name of the game, but also really, really understanding liquidity and the risk reward and the liquidity around each position that we currently hold. Marilyn, you talked there about some geopolitical risk factors that need to be put into the equation. What about domestic politics? I'm thinking specifically of France here. I'm looking at a 10-year yield that started March around 40 basis points. We're now in and around 129. What would happen to yeah. the French bond market if Marine Le Pen were to win the runoff on April 24th? So we have seen, as you mentioned, um, <clears throat> a lot of volatility also around, around France, around the potential election. And <clears throat> the market is clearly signaling that it's positioning itself for, it has a preference for uh, in the market, in the euro, in terms of um, keeping much of the same. So Macron obviously staying in power. It does remain to be seen. And we have this runoff on the 24th of April. And I think we will start to see a lot of volatility around that event. Um, if uh, Le Pen does win, I think it's too hard to say at the moment. I mean, she has really been quite clear, I think, around some of her economic policies. Um, and I think it really remains to be seen if she were to get into power what her, you know, the policies that she actually um, implements would be. I do think it's maybe a little case of sort of as well, sort of just trading around this volatility, sort of like, you know, buying the rumor, sell the facts potentially as well. So I, I think for the time being, it's more around the potential trade-off between the two candidates. But in either scenario, it really remains to be seen what policies would be implemented. Marilyn, thank you so much. Marilyn Watson there of BlackRock. This is a true joy. He is a prolific writer on Chiang Kai-shek. He is a writer on France, as definitive the history of modern France is an important read. I've read it cover to cover. But also a one volume on what there was before Macron, before Le Pen. And that is, of course, his magisterial book on General de Gaulle. It can only be Jonathan Fenby. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you explain the collapse of the center in the right 
around the 39-year-old maverick, Mr. Macron, in his second term. What de Gaulle wrought seems to be politically destroyed. Is it? Well, the, uh, the the conventional left, center left, center right uh, division on which the Fifth Republic has rested really for the last uh, 50 years or more is now destroyed. Uh, Macron took away a lot of the support from the socialists last time round, and this time he seems to have taken away a lot of support from the center right Republicans. Add to that uh, the rise of Le Pen and other extremists <clears throat> on both left and right. And uh, right. France's politics have become completely fragmented. In the in the tumult of America, there was a massive turnout in the last election. Mr. Trump, of course, notes 74 million people chose to vote for Trump. Tell us the mystery of this turnout April 24th. Well, the, the question now is how many of the people who voted for the hard left-wing candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, and there were 22% went for him, which was an unusually high, an unexpectedly high number. How many of those will who don't like Macron will still hold their noses and vote for him? Or how many will abstain? And it's really in that uh, uh, equation that probably the outcome of the runoff on the 24th will be decided. Jonathan, how much is the move toward Marine Le Pen indicative of this shift away from the Western order, something that we saw with the Trump presidency and certainly that we've seen on the margins in a number of nations? It is in part that, uh, but the even harder right uh, candidate, Eric Zemmour, who played the values card uh, much more strongly than Le Pen, he didn't do as well as many people thought he might have done. And Le Pen really picked up a lot of votes yesterday uh, on cost of living issues, uh, security, law and order, all these kind of grassroots issues, which she made the center of her campaign. And what does Emmanuel Macron need to do as he campaigns between now and April 24th? What is his largest task? His largest task is to show that he cares for the French people. Um, his opponents made mm. the argument uh, going into the first round that he was too obsessed with his position as an international statesman, having once described the president as Jupiter-like, uh, that he floated right. above everyday concerns. <clears throat> and he's got to get show the French that he cares for them. John, I'm absolutely fascinated by this and that, in folks, this is very different than America. Paris is roughly 31% of the GDP of France. I mean, it's Paris-centric. Is this, John, just simply, you know, as a generalization, Paris and Macron against the nation of the rest of France? That is the, certainly the way Le Pen will try to pitch it, uh, I think, for the second round. You're a metropolitan elitist who cares for the, rest, the, the world, the, the upper elite uh, class uh, looking after them, the president of the rich, and you've got the rest of France, which is being left in the doldrums. And that's really been her main uh, campaign <clears throat> theme. Okay, but John, here, here's the issue. To our viewers in radio and TV, their view of France, as you well know, is table 12, table dues at Au Petit France, Au Petit Suisse overlooking the Luxembourg Garden. I mean, you sit there in the sun and everything's great. That's not France. Is that what France is saying to Macron? You're not France? 
Absolutely, Tom, you've got it absolutely right there. The rest of France, those who voted for Le Pen and for Mélenchon, and I uh, emphasize again that he got 22% of the vote, uh, although he finished third, uh, they're basically telling Macron, look, uh, France doesn't just exist in the smart parts of Paris. It exists in rundown towns and <clears throat> suburbs and deserted farmlands. And you've got to start paying some attention to us. How much popular support is there within France, Jonathan, for uh, France's approach to Russia, to what's going on in Ukraine? Well, uh, Ukraine, in a sense, has been, uh, it's been there all through the campaign. But um, Macron's uh, conversations with Putin, uh, I don't think did him any harm, because he was seen as putting France on the world stage. On the other hand, the far left and far right uh, candidates who palled up to Putin earlier on uh, are somewhat embarrassed by this. And Macron will make a lot of their closeness depends a uh, big loan from a Russian bank, for instance. A lot of that will come up in the campaigning for the second round. Jonathan Fenby, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Wonderful to catch up with you again. And folks, I can't say enough about Mr. Fenby's commitment to writing of France. There have been other great books on France, great one volumes on De Gaulle, but Fenby is the one who over the years has just put together truly thousands of pages on this interesting, interesting uh, nation. On oil right now, Ellen Wall joins senior fellow at Atlantic Council and definitive as well on the Saudis. Ellen Wall, with the oil issues and with demand in China, what do the Saudis do? The Saudis, I think, are actually in, in a somewhat uh, difficult position at the moment with uh, problems in, in terms of these lockdowns uh, and potentially really could cut into demand in China, especially with Russian crude being available at such a discount for the, the Chinese, they may really need to make their products more competitive. So they do have long-term contracts with certain Chinese refineries, particularly the petrochemical and refineries that they themselves, that, that Aramco has stakes in. So they don't need to worry about that supply, but it's it's basically everything else on the margins that they're used to selling to the Chinese that they may need to uh, make their products a little bit more competitive mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, to well, compete with this cheap Russian oil. And we could see them offer uh, a price cut. Okay, well, they'll offer a price cut. Ellen, let's go to Wald 101. Is oil one price this morning, one global price or not? Well, it, it's never really one global price. We've got the benchmarks, and then we've got, you know, the different blends that are sold based on those benchmarks. So Russian crude can, you know, the, the, the Chinese can get this Russian crude for, you know, it could be as much as $30 off of the, the Brent benchmark. And that's a really good deal for China. Even if they're experiencing a drop in demand, they could use this opportunity to um, put more into storage. So I'm not sure that we'll necessarily see fewer imports going into China if China thinks they can get a discount. But consumption in China could definitely go down, and that could hurt the uh, independent refinery business, which uh, does a lot of you know, business making products and selling them around Asia. <clears throat> and if there's no demand coming for these products from, from you know, China and, and other areas, that could definitely hurt that 
sector uh, Ellen, in China. Is there a historical corollary for this period in terms of uncertainty, in terms of volatility and oil price, in terms of the fact that we're asking the question, is there a global price for oil or is it basically choose your own adventure? Yeah, it's, I, I really think that, that this is a, a very unprecedented period in uh, historically because there is so much effect uh, in terms of speculation and of all of these different prices going around uh, in the market today. We used to, you know, there were previous times when we had big oil incidents. We, you know, remember the, the 1970s oil shocks. We had the Iranian Revolution. Those were all massive uh, issues in the oil market, except that at that time, uh, there wasn't this kind of financialization of the oil markets. You didn't have, you know, traders trading oil every minute or, or you didn't have algorithms that were acting on the market in mere seconds or even less than seconds. And mm -hmm. all of this uh, financialization introduces uh, more volatility and it makes any move much more, uh, it, it makes it uh, much more attenuated. Uh, so, you know, we may see uh, the effects of these uh, Chinese lockdowns, but the fact that there's so much money and so much trading and so much attention to the oil market just makes these swings even larger and even more volatile. Ellen, you mentioned there the Iranian revolution. Let's talk about Iran in a different context. It's saying today that the 2015 nuclear deal is in the emergency room. It's not dead, but it's in the emergency room. What is your base case on whether or not a deal can ultimately be reached and how that will reflect in oil prices? Yeah, this is, this is a, a, I think, a, a significant issue, particularly because um, several months ago, there was a lot of optimism that we would get an Iran deal. I remember speaking with uh, people who were very much in tune in, in the Iran analysis area, and they were very, very positive that a deal would get done before March. And now looking at the situation, it's a different ballgame. And I do think that the incredible rise in oil prices and the war in Ukraine has given Iran an advantage because they are still selling their oil and they're making much more money. And so that doesn't, uh, that, that reduces the pressure on them to come to the, the table and to make concessions. Right. So uh, it's, it's really created a situation in which Iran is, is in the driver's seat here. Ellen Wald, thank you so much. On a global view, I can't say enough about her one volume on Saudi and the royalty. Just a superb uh, effort on Saudi Arabia. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.